Coming to you all the way from Liverpool in England, we're the Super Nerds UK podcast. And you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry offers the best media hosting, accurate listening stats, and their all-new PowerPress Deluxe sites, a no-setup WordPress website for your podcast, and it comes with all of the necessary links to share your show with the world built right in. Head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up for media hosting, a PowerPress Deluxe site, get that podcast you've been dreaming about started, and get your first month for free. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com slash dream. And now, on to the show. On April 29, 1992, I don't exactly remember what 17-year-old me was doing that particular day. It was my senior year in high school. I was set to graduate in about six weeks. The senior prom was that weekend at some fancy hotel in downtown Los Angeles. And no, I didn't go. I don't think that I was working anymore, if I recall correctly. I quit my job so I can concentrate on finishing out the school year and graduating. I was probably at home when the news broke that the four officers who were on trial for beating Rodney King were acquitted. I remember being surprised at the verdict. I had watched that videotape of his beating many, many times on the local news, and it hadn't really occurred to me that those officers wouldn't be held accountable for what they'd done. I'd have to say that that was the very first verdict I remember feeling shocked over. Little did I know that there would be a long, steady succession of shocking verdicts in the years to come, not just in Los Angeles, but all over the country. O.J. Simpson, Robert Blake, Casey Anthony, George Zimmerman. But for me, the Rodney King acquittal was the first really shocking one. But I had no idea, and maybe it's me being naive, or maybe I hadn't really truly had a grasp on the implications of what it meant for these officers to have been found not guilty of anything in relation to what they did to Rodney. I'm not from the inner cities. I'm from the suburbs. And one more mile to the east and I'd be out of Los Angeles County altogether and behind the orange curtain that separates the OC from everyone else. But what erupted at the flashpoint of it all? 20 miles away on that corner of Florence and Normandy Avenues, I did not see that coming. And it was scary for everyone. The city was burning and the skies darkened with a thick layer of smoke. And watching the mayhem on the news was like watching a movie. And I could not wrap my head around the fact that this was going on in the city. It looked like a war zone, like this was some footage from a foreign country or something. Except for the fact that the people were running out of stores with clothes and shoes and furniture and televisions. And it went on for days. And the police? They were nowhere to be found. They were letting the city burn. They were letting the people riot. And they were letting the criminals loot. They were letting the citizens of Los Angeles and the surrounding communities assault, beat, maim, 
and kill one another. And I'm going to tell you why. In today's 33rd episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of Los Angeles Burning. On April 29, 1992, at 3.15 in the afternoon, Sergeant Stacy C. Kuhn and Officers Lawrence M. Powell, Theodore J. Brasino, and Timothy E. Wind were acquitted for any wrongdoing in the March 3, 1991 beating of Rodney Glenn King. The jurors were not convinced by the 81-second video that it was a true depiction and full representation of the entire story of what happened that night. The video, which showed LAPD officers repeatedly delivering baton blows and kicks to Rodney as he rolled on the ground, left those images seared into the minds of everyone who viewed it. However, the jury found those police officers were justified in their use of force against him. The outcome of the trial enraged many, many people in the community who viewed the verdict as another incident of the police getting away with violence, brutality, and excessive force that has long been used against African Americans and other minorities in Los Angeles and the surrounding communities. To many, it was simply another setback, and the community would not stand for it. At 4.30 p.m., a little more than an hour after the reading of the verdicts, the very first distress call was made from the Korean-American owner of Tom's Liquor, located at the corner of Florence and Normandy in South Central Los Angeles. At 5.25 p.m., police responded to the very first reports of trouble at the intersection of Florence and Normandy, which has since become known as the flashpoint of the rioting. Passing motorists were being attacked, items thrown at their cars, and nearby businesses are under attack as well. Police arrived at the scene, but they quickly retreated, and they would not return to the area for almost three hours. Without any police presence in the area, the crowds gathered and the violence began to escalate. Soon, the rioting was spreading to other areas of the city. At 6.30 p.m., angry demonstrators began to gather outside of LAPD headquarters at Parker Center and violence soon erupted on the steps of the building. Local television news stations are breaking into all regularly scheduled programming and are beginning to show live scenes of the violence that has continued to intensify at and around the corner of Florence and Normandy and at Parker Center. At this point, Police Chief Daryl Gates, who incidentally has not so much as uttered a word to Mayor Tom Bradley in the year since Rodney's beating, announced to the media that the community and his officers are dealing with the situation calmly, maturely, and professionally. Despite the attacks on his headquarters, Chief Gates drove to a reception fundraiser for a campaign against Charter Amendment F, a police reform ballot measure. How convenient. At 6.45 p.m., from the vantage point of news helicopters overhead, television stations broadcasted gravel truck driver Reginald Denny being dragged from the cab of his vehicle and nearly beaten to death in the middle of the intersection at Florence and Normandy. By this time, 
The intersection had been the scene of violent protesting upwards of more than three hours with absolutely no police presence. And I will address the LAPD's decision to retreat from the area as the violence took over the city a little bit later. Mr. Denny was beaten about the head and body with a tire iron, a fire extinguisher, and a brick. If you have not seen the footage of Mr. Denny being beaten, it's an easy Google search and you can see it for yourself. But I have to warn you, the images are really graphic, very violent, and very heartbreaking, as Mr. Denny was nothing more than an innocent passerby, as many, many of those who were attacked at that corner were. And by the way, rioters did not have their sights set on white motorists. If you weren't black, then you were a target too. Fortunately, Mr. Denny was eventually rescued by four good Samaritans, two men and two women, who stepped in and drove him and his truck to safety and to help get him medical attention. I want to pause here in the timeline and talk a little bit more about Mr. Reginald Denny. The men who attacked him came to be known as the LA Four. However, for the sakes of this story, we will not be referring to them as such. What if I were to sit here and call Coon, Powell, Racino, and Wind the LAPD for? It sounds terrible, right? To in some ways idealize these groups of men and what they did to Rodney King and Reginald Denny. The four men who attacked Mr. Denny were Damian Williams, Henry Watson, Antoine Miller, and Gary Williams. At about a quarter to six that afternoon of April 29th, Mr. Denny had loaded his truck with 27 tons of sand to take to a plant in Inglewood, California. His route took him through the intersection of Florence and Normandy to get where he needed to go. He didn't have a radio in his truck, so he really had no way of knowing that he was driving straight into a riot. As soon as he entered the intersection, rioters began throwing rocks at his windows. People were yelling at him to stop driving, standing in the middle of the road, preventing him from proceeding any further. And he did the right thing. You know, Mr. Denny could have easily continued driving, but out of concern for the people blocking his way, he stopped. Sadly, he stopped. Antoine Miller climbed up and opened the door of Mr. Denny's truck. This gave another unknown individual the opportunity to pull Mr. Denny out of his truck and throw him onto the pavement. Henry Watson proceeded to stand on Mr. Denny's neck in an effort to hold him down as a group of men began to surround him. Anthony Brown then kicked him in the abdomen. Miller then took it upon himself to search Mr. Denny's pockets and followed that up with climbing into the truck and stealing a bag and running off. Watson, too, then walked away from Mr. Denny. Suddenly, two other unidentified men joined in on the attack on Mr. Denny. One of them heaved a five-pound oxygenator, an item that had been stolen from another truck, directly at Mr. Denny's head. The other unidentified individual kicked Mr. Denny and hit him multiple times with a claw hammer. Mr. Denny attempted to make his way to his feet, but before he could, Damien Williams threw a brick at the side of his head, which rendered Mr. Denny unconscious. With him blacked out, laying on the pavement before him, 
Williams can clearly be seen taunting him, pointing at Mr. Denny, laughing at what he'd done to him, and followed that up with a victory dance in the middle of the intersection, all the while flashing gang signs at the news helicopters that are filming his every move. These events were being broadcasted live as they were happening. Brown joined in the flashing of gang signs and then proceeded to spit on Mr. Denny. Another unidentified man can be seen standing over him as he lay on the ground, bleeding profusely from his wounds, but did not attempt to render him any first aid or seek help for him. As Mr. Denny continued to lay on the ground next to his truck, unconscious and bleeding from the vicious attack, other rioters continued the onslaught by hurling bottles at him. Gary Williams can then be seen approaching Mr. Denny as he laid there and rifled through his pockets and then ran off from the scene. Eventually, Mr. Denny can be seen slowly beginning to come to, and he'd even managed to get to his knees. But suddenly, the man who had attacked him with the claw hammer ran up and gave him a flying kick to the face. On the other side of Mr. Denny's truck, Lance Parker can be seen on his motorcycle stopping next to it and attempting to shoot the fuel tank with his shotgun, but he missed and then drove off. Watching this beating of Mr. Denny unfold on television, four individuals came to his aid. Bobby Green Jr., Lee Yule, Titus Murphy, and Terry Barnett. Mr. Denny had eventually been able to get himself back into the cab of his truck, and he managed to slowly but erratically drive away from the intersection. Bobby Green, who was also a truck driver, got into Mr. Denny's truck and took over the driving for him. He drove him to Daniel Freeman Hospital in the city of Inglewood. Those who attended to Mr. Denny when he arrived indicated that he had come in within minutes of death, that he would not have made it if he had not been brought in to the hospital when he was. As soon as Mr. Green arrived at the hospital, Mr. Denny suffered a seizure. His skull was fractured in 91 places and had been pushed into his brain. His left eye had been dislocated in such a way that it would have fallen into his sinus cavity had not emergency surgeons replaced the crushed bone with a piece of plastic. A permanent crater still remains in Mr. Denny's forehead. He underwent years of rehabilitative therapy as his ability to speak and his ability to walk were permanently damaged. He filed a lawsuit against the city of Los Angeles, but his case was unsuccessful. So he moved to Lake Havasu, Arizona and found work as a boat mechanic. He has, for the most part, remained reclusive, rarely speaking publicly about the attack. Antoine Miller was sentenced to 17 months in jail and 27 months probation. Gary Williams was sentenced to three years in jail. The trial for Damien Williams and Henry Watson ended in a hung jury for all charges except for one felony count of mayhem for Williams and one misdemeanor assault charge for both of them. Watson was given credit for time served and sentenced to three years probation. Williams was retried and sentenced to a maximum of 10 years for the assault on Mr. Denny and four other people. Okay, so let's get back to the timeline. At 8.30 p.m. that first night of rioting, 
Chief Gates, who left LAPD headquarters hours earlier for that fundraiser in Brentwood, returned to the city's emergency response center sometime between 8.30 and 9 o'clock p.m. Remember, he's not on speaking terms with the mayor, and he has a very strained relationship with the police commission and the city council. He had announced his plans to retire the previous year after Rodney's beating, but at this point in time, he is still chief as the search for a replacement was ongoing. At 8.45 p.m., Mayor Tom Bradley announced a local state of emergency. A few minutes later, California Governor Pete Wilson, at the request of Mayor Bradley, ordered the National Guard to activate 2,000 reserve soldiers to be sent into Los Angeles. At 9.45 p.m., the California Highway Patrol closed the exit ramps off the Harbor Freeway from the Santa Monica Freeway Interchange to the Century Boulevard exit to prevent motorists from entering into the areas of violent rioting. At 11 p.m., Mayor Bradley, in a televised statement, somberly addressed the city, stating that the city would take whatever resources necessary to quell the violence, that the city is receiving assistance from the County Sheriff's Department, the California Highway Patrol, and police and fire departments from neighboring cities. He said, we believe that the situation is now simmering down, pretty much under control. Stay off the streets. It's anticipated that a curfew will be put in effect tomorrow night. On April 30th at 12.15 a.m., entering into day two of the rioting, Mayor Bradley declared a sunset to sunrise curfew within the area bordered by Vernon Avenue on the north, the city limits on the east, Century Boulevard on the south, and Crenshaw Boulevard on the west. The mayor's directive also prohibited the sale of ammunition and the sale of gasoline, except for automobiles. By 6 a.m. on day two of rioting, the riots have all but paralyzed a huge part of Los Angeles, from downtown LA to the west side, from South Los Angeles to Pasadena. By the end of the day, the city bus services were canceled throughout all of Los Angeles. Most employers have shut down doing business and employees were told to stay home until further notice. Mail delivery was suspended throughout South Los Angeles. Professional basketball and baseball games were canceled. Schools were closed throughout the entire city, as well as Inglewood, Compton, and Linwood. By 8 a.m. on day two of rioting, the National Guard troops are in place at armories, but they would not be deployed until later that afternoon. Governor Pete Wilson stated that the reason why they took so long is because police commanders had trouble deciding how best to use the National Guard troops. However, sometime later, after reviewing the delays and getting the troops out there to help take control over the rioting, it was found that there was generally very poor advance planning and a series of mishaps that were to blame for the delay during the very crucial hours leading into the first night of rioting. The report criticized the decision by guard leaders to centralize ammunition supplies at Camp Roberts in the Monterey area of California instead of dispersing supplies at strategically located armories across the state. Monterey is well over 300 miles or 482 kilometers away from the Los Angeles area. Consolidation of ammunition supplies 
Something that was in place for security reasons had just been completed days before the riots broke out. And as it turned out, it would be the largest reasons why the guard troops were unable to get into the riot affected areas quickly. Once they were on the streets, patrolling neighborhoods and keeping watch of public buildings, they were a major factor in effectively curtailing the violence. But it should not be lost to anyone that a more efficient deployment of the National Guard could have prevented some of the deaths, looting, and violence that carried on uninhibited. The report highlighted the fact that the National Guard leaders were largely unprepared when Governor Wilson ordered them to deploy troops into Los Angeles when rioting broke out. The Guard had also not been notified in advance by local officials that troops might be needed in the wake of the verdict. They did not have a contingency plan in place. When Governor Wilson ordered their deployment at 8.45 p.m. on the first night of rioting, the first 2,000 troops arrived about seven hours later, but they were forced to remain at the Los Alamitos staging area, where they stayed for more than nine hours because they had no ammunition. All the while, the rioting was continuing unimpeded. Incidentally, the Los Alamitos Joint Forces Training Base is located near where I'm from. It's a military facility about 25 miles or so outside of Los Angeles. It's actually located in Orange County. I used to go there when I was a kid with my dad, who was, by the time I was born, retired from the Navy. He'd go there to do stuff like get his shoes shined or get his hair cut. It still has a morale, welfare, and recreation services facility, as well as the very last military pub in Orange County. Okay, so that was off topic. Anyway, while the troops were waiting at the Los Alamitos base, there was just a series of unfortunate mishaps that kept happening, causing even more delays to the deployment. Stupid things, really, that should not have happened. For example, a helicopter sent from Stockton did not arrive to pick up ammunition at Camp Roberts until 6.30 a.m. on April 30th, the dawn of day two of riding. The helicopter was late because the flight crew could not take off until they were fitted with gas masks. Valuable time was lost as they had to sit there and wait for a National Guard official to come and unlock the storeroom where the gas masks were stored. When the helicopter did reach Camp Roberts, the crew did not have the equipment to load the ammunition, so they had to resort to stowing the cargo by hand. Once the pallets were loaded, the flight crew was told that some of the grenades they had on board were obsolete. So they had to unload the helicopter, remove the obsolete grenades, replace them with new ones, and then reload everything. Again, wasting crucial time. Remember, while these people are bumbling around Camp Roberts, LA is burning, violence is spreading, and people are dying. And there were yet even more delays. The helicopter, while en route from Camp Roberts to Los Angeles, was diverted to Camp San Luis Obispo, which is about 200 miles or 321 kilometers north of Los Angeles, to pick up flak vests, which is body armor, riot batons, and face shields. It seems like a legitimate pit stop, right? Well, here's the thing. The diversion was ordered to save money by consolidating flights to two locations into one. 
They could have used two helicopters to transport supplies to Los Angeles in order to save time, but they didn't. Not only that, the helicopter crew was forced to unload some of the ammunition to make room for the extra equipment. And the delays continued from there as they had to wait for lock plates to be transported to the base so those two could be taken to Los Angeles. And incidentally, lock plates modify the National Guard's automatic M16 rifles into semi-automatic weapons. They were not going to send automatic weaponry into the riot zones. And if all that weren't bad enough, it gets worse. The National Guard had largely been trained in missions related to natural disasters and major drug trafficking intervention efforts, things like that. They had not been trained to suppress civil disturbances. The report found that the National Guard leaders did not believe their troops would be needed for that purpose. Therefore, they weren't trained for it. So while all of the supplies and ammunition was slowly making its way to Los Angeles, National Guard commanders were hastily training the troops for entering into the riot zones right up until the moment their supplies arrived. They were still trying to train. As you can imagine, many changes were made in policies and procedures following the National Guard's LA riot fail. At 10.15 a.m. on day two of rioting, Mayor Bradley expanded the boundaries of the curfew to include more of the areas that have been affected by the rioting and the violence to the areas bounded by Jefferson Boulevard on the north, Central Avenue on the east, Century Boulevard on the south, and Crenshaw Boulevard on the west. The curfew order continued to prohibit the sale of ammunition and the sale of gasoline for anything other than cars. At noon, on day two of rioting, the National Guard was officially deployed. This was considered a military operation in Los Angeles, and it was understood by the time rioting broke out in the city that there were communities that were considered extremely dangerous. At the time, Los Angeles County had over 100,000 known gang members, and the prior year, in 1991, there had been 771 gang-related homicides. Many of the neighborhoods in the city were being overrun by rival gangs, and many officers at the time would readily admit that the streets were lost to gangs. So this was the environment in Los Angeles when the Rodney King verdict was announced. When units were finally dispatched, the most immediate concern was to provide protection of firemen responding to the arson fires in the riot areas. Several firemen had already been wounded, and many were refusing to leave their stations without protection. So fires were left to burn. National Guard troops were quickly sent to the most volatile areas where there had been a considerable amount of rioting, shootings, fires, and looting. Then they began to strategically spread throughout the affected areas. At 12.45 p.m. on day two of rioting, Mayor Bradley declared a citywide dusk-to-dawn curfew for the entire city of Los Angeles. Curfews were also declared in several other nearby cities in Los Angeles County. Looting and fires were continuing to be reported, and then the Korean community, who had been one of the main targets of looting and violence, had formed armed community teams as a result of the absence of any kind of police presence. Armed Korean-American store owners 
were taking positions on the rooftops of their businesses to protect them from looters and fires. For days, those merchants who have had a large presence as business owners in the more impoverished areas of Los Angeles did not see law enforcement, while buildings all around them were being looted and burned. The acquittal of those four officers sparked a long seething cultural clash between immigrant Korean business owners and their predominantly African-American customers, causing it to reach a boiling point. Although the Rodney King verdict and the subsequent rioting are often regarded as being turning points for a change between the strained relationship between law enforcement and the African-American community, it had also become the single most significant modern-day event for the Korean-American community as well. There was an overwhelming sentiment that they as victims, with their losses of their businesses in Los Angeles amounting to nearly half the total cost of damage, that there was very little or no concern by the mainstream media because of their lack of visibility and representation in politics and in the community. It was a wake-up call to all Korean immigrants who came to the United States that being a successful business person wasn't going to guarantee them a significant place in America. They learned that they needed to establish an identity, not just economic wealth. As Los Angeles continued to burn, the Korean American community felt abandoned by law enforcement. They felt expendable. Just before midnight on day two of rioting, Mayor Bradley and Governor Wilson announced that they were requesting more National Guard troops, bringing the total number of troops in Los Angeles to 6,000. They also requested for the U.S. military to be placed on alert. On May 1st, day three of rioting, at 1 p.m., more than 1,000 Korean American community members gathered for a rally of peace in Koreatown while the looting and rioting continued to rage on. At 2 p.m. on day three of rioting, the city of Pomona declared a state of emergency. Pomona is a city located northeast of Los Angeles between the San Gabriel Valley and the Inland Empire. There would be one riot-related homicide that happened in Pomona and I will talk about the death toll a little bit later. At 2.45 p.m. on day three of rioting, Rodney King himself broke his silence. Hundreds of reporters gathered to hear him make his public statement from outside the Beverly Hills office of his attorney. With him visibly nervous and his voice shaky, his statement read as follows. I just want to say, you know, can we all get along? Can we? Can we get along? Can we stop making it horrible for the older people and the kids? And I mean, we've got enough smog in Los Angeles, let alone to deal with setting these fires and things. It's just not right. It's not right. And it's not going to change anything. We'll get our justice. They've won the battle, but they haven't won the war. We'll get our day in court, and that's all we want. And just, I love, I'm neutral. I love every, I love people of color. And I'm not like they're making me out to be. We've got to quit. We've got to quit. 
I mean, after all, I can understand that first, be upset for the first couple hours after the verdict, but to go on, to keep going like this, to see that security guard shot on the ground, it's just not right. It's not right. Because those people will never go home to their families again. I mean, please, we can. We can get along here. We all can get along. We've just got to. We got to. I mean, we're all stuck here for a while. Let's, you know, let's try and work it out. Let's try and beat it, you know? Let's try and work it out. At 3 p.m., on day three of rioting, 4,000 federal troops, Marines, and soldiers began arriving at Tustin and El Toro air stations. By 6 p.m. that afternoon, nearly all National Guard troops had been deployed to the streets of Los Angeles and the surrounding communities under siege by the rioting and the fires. On May 2nd, day four of rioting at 8 a.m., the first of more than 6,000 alleged looters and arsonists had been scheduled to begin appearing in court. This was a Saturday. Court is never open on Saturdays as prosecutors showed up in sweats, golf shirts, and running shoes. Cases ranged anywhere from the guy caught carrying two lamps down the street to the grandma pushing a shopping cart full of meat and liquor to the guy carrying around a sawed-off shotgun shouting, If the police F with me, I've got something for them. Due to the large volume of criminal cases, arraignments didn't actually begin until later on in the afternoon. At 11 a.m. on day four of rioting, an estimated 30,000 people marched in Los Angeles's Koreatown in a resounding show of support and solidarity for the merchants fraught by days of rioting. Some carried garbage bags, others carried brooms, many wearing white headbands symbolizing the mourning of lives lost in the past few days. They were there to help clean up, but they were also there calling for peace and to stop the fighting. Several of the Korean marchers stepped off the route to hug and shake hands with many of the African Americans and Latino Americans who were there to watch and show support. Not many of them marched along, however. The marchers were predominantly Korean. And as they marched, many dropped out of the procession to help clean up some of the sites of damaged businesses. The marchers were led by the friends and relatives of Edward Lee, an 18-year-old resident of Koreatown who was shot to death on day two of the rioting as he attempted to ward off looters. At 11.30 a.m. on day four of rioting, Mayor Bradley announced that the citywide curfew was to remain in effect indefinitely. At 4 p.m. on day four of rioting, the Marine Corps arrived in Compton, approximately 1,500 of them from Camp Pendleton, California. On May 3rd, day five of rioting, at 10.30 a.m., the Reverend Jesse Jackson met with community leaders in Koreatown to help urge an end to the animosity between the African-American and the Korean-American communities. He traveled to several different areas, speaking to the community, pleading for an end to the violence. At 11.30 a.m. on day five of rioting, 
Mayor Bradley announced that he would be lifting the dusk to dawn curfew the following day, Monday, May 4th. He also announced that there would be an inquiry as to the LAPD and the National Guard delays in responding to the crisis, which I've already gone over some of that regarding the National Guard delays. At 1 p.m. on day 5 of rioting, the Harbor Freeway off-ramps that were closed at the onset of the riots from Martin Luther King Boulevard to Imperial Highway were finally reopened. Initially, the exits of the freeway to the north were closed, from Santa Monica Freeway Interchange to Century Boulevard, but those closures had eventually been moved more south. Also, limited bus service to the riot-affected areas began to resume. On Monday, May 4th, with rifle-toting military soldiers guarding nearly every street corner, Los Angelinos finally returned to work and school. But as many as 40,000 others lined up at the unemployment offices, put out of work as a direct result of their places of employment having been destroyed by looting or burned to the ground. And with that, the Los Angeles riots of 1992 was more or less over. On May 11, 1992, former FBI Director William H. Webster was appointed to lead an investigation of the LAPD response to the violence, looting, and rioting that swept through the city, or should I say, lack of response. The department, as well as Chief Gates, who was still in command, were heavily criticized for their handling of the civil unrest, which, by the time it was over, left 60 people dead and caused over $1 billion in damage. Gates, who was criticized for leaving the police headquarters to attend that political fundraiser I mentioned earlier, said he was about to complete his own in-house probe of the department's response. And he stated that he was certain that Webster's investigation will mirror his own conclusions. That despite some minor glitches in the early stages of the riots, LAPD officers and commanders performed well, stating, I'm comfortable with the preparations that took place. A lot of effort was put into it. He further defended the actions of his officers in the face of the growing riots, stating that because of the attacks on the department following the King beating, that may have caused officers and commanders to be reluctant to use force out of fear of causing more allegations of police brutality. He also answered to the renewed effort to see him retire earlier than he had promised. He announced that he would leave his position as chief of the LAPD in June. He said that he would not be leaving any sooner. His replacement had already been chosen, Philadelphia Police Commissioner Willie Williams. He announced his retirement date from that position on May 15th and that he was going to move to Los Angeles by the end of May. Officials wanted him in ASAP, but it would not be. Gates finally retired on June 28, 1992, after 42 years with the LAPD. On October 22nd, the Webster investigation released its report. In its assessment of the LAPD response to the riots, they found that the department may have been able to limit the spread of the violence the first night of the rioting if it had followed its own protocol. But the opportunity for containment was bungled at two critical locations where early rioting had been televised, the intersection of Florence and Normandy and at the LAPD headquarters at Parker Center. 
At both locations, high-ranking officers made the decision to retreat, and the message was sent far and wide via live television broadcasts that anyone rioting, setting fires, or otherwise breaking laws would be given the liberty to do so. Citing the LAPD's own policies and procedures, the report stated that police should have cordoned off the area around Florence and Normandy to prevent the civil disorder from spreading, as well as to keep innocent people from entering into the area and becoming unwitting victims. The sealing off of the area should have taken place by 7 p.m., but instead, officers were ordered to abandon Florence and Normandy. An analysis of 911 calls from the first night of rioting showed that most of the initial violence was centered in south-central Los Angeles and did not have any significant movement from the area until after 7 p.m. It was found that two high-ranking officers seemed to have considered a containment strategy, but the confusion and the paralysis at the temporary command center overwhelmed officers, causing no containment strategy to ever be implemented. At Parker Center, the same message was being communicated to officers, they were not going to take any action. The report also included the assessments of key figures during the riots. On ex-Chief Gates, it stated, when Daryl Gates became chief of police, the department's policing style reverted to a more paramilitary model. Gates also moved the department away from contact with the community by placing more and more of his officers outside regular patrol functions and into highly trained, technically sophisticated, specialized units that had little day-to-day -day contact with the community. On Mayor Bradley, it stated, the mayor evidently anticipated the possibility of an adverse reaction to the trial verdicts and directed his staff to map out a response plan with community leaders. The mayor's plan seemed to have been a relatively good one as far as it went. On the officers in command of the response to Florence and Normandy, it stated, there is no dispute about the fact that they did not return to redeploy officers at Florence and Normandy Avenues. This failure to respond aggressively and in force appears to have been a significant tactical mistake. On August 5, 1992, three months after those four officers were acquitted for any wrongdoing in the beating trial of Rodney King, a federal grand jury indicted the same four men on charges of violating Rodney's Fourth Amendment protection against unreasonable arrest. The indictment also charged Sergeant Stacy Kuhn with violating Rodney's 14th Amendment right to due process when he failed to stop the officers under his command from beating him. From the time of the night of the beating, there had been a federal interest in the case, as civil rights has always been a primary concern of the Department of Justice. Now, if you are an avid listener of true crime podcasts and watcher of true crime shows and documentaries, then I probably don't have to tell you that putting these officers on trial in federal court for civil rights violations does not constitute a violation of the Double Jeopardy Clause of the Constitution. But, just in case if you are wondering how or why these men were set to be tried again when they've already been acquitted, let me quickly explain how this is happening. Some entities would contend that these officers are being tried again for the same crimes for which they had been acquitted, and this is a case of unconstitutional double jeopardy. The clause in the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution prohibits the government from prosecuting individuals more than one time for a single offense, 
as well as imposing more than one punishment for a single offense. But these four police officers were tried for state-level crimes and subsequently acquitted. What they were being put on trial for at the federal level is violating Rodney's civil rights. The two cases have a lot in common, but mainly the question that had been repeatedly raised, did the police use excessive force in arresting Rodney King? But the federal crime, which is often thought to be more difficult to try and prove, has the additional component of the intent of the officers to inflict punishment upon Rodney at the scene without due process of law. If they are found guilty, they would have indeed been convicted of a different national crime. The first President Bush made the move to invoke federal authority following the violent reaction to the officer's acquittal. California's criminal verdict of not guilty did not absolve President Bush of the need to come to the determination of whether or not Rodney's constitutional rights were violated. And the Supreme Court has repeatedly ruled that a single criminal act can violate the laws of more than one jurisdiction and can be punished by each. And that's because the state government and the federal government are separate sovereigns. There were going to be some glaring differences in the second trial than in the first. For one thing, the trial would be held in Los Angeles. The jury, who had been chosen and sequestered, was a racially diverse group with eight men and four women. And what's more, Rodney King himself would be taking the stand. And when he did, the courtroom was hushed. He told the story of his beating, which by this time had been more than two years earlier. He said the officers taunted him with racial epithets. They threatened to kill him, and they provoked him to try and run before smashing him in the head with a baton. Rodney's testimony was powerful, yet at the same time, he came across as vulnerable and sincere, as he told the jury he was just trying to stay alive. And his testimony effectively injected the issue of race into the case when he testified that the officers asked him, what's up, how do you feel, n-word, chanting those statements repeatedly at him. He said that he told the officers that he was fine because he didn't want them to know that what they were doing to him was getting to him. He didn't want to give them any satisfaction in what they were doing. He described the baton blows as feeling like you would when you get up in the middle of the night and you jam your toe into a piece of metal. That's what getting hit with the baton felt like. He told the jury that the first baton blow to his head came when he leapt to his feet when officers shouted to him to run, we're going to kill you, N-word, run. That's why, he says, he got up and lunged forward. He admitted to have been drinking that night he led those officers on that high-speed chase. He admitted that he fled because he was on parole and a traffic violation would send him back to prison. He also was able to bring on new details of the beating that he endured, things that may not have been so clear on the video. He described getting out of the car and that he was following the officer's commands to put his hands on the hood of the car, take three steps back, lie face down on the ground. But when officers grabbed his wrists in order to be handcuffed, he flinched in pain. But he also shouted, ah, and when he did, he then heard a voice say, get back, and that's when he was tased. In his cross-examination, he maintained his composure, 
and stubbornly stuck to his story as defense attorneys attempted to twist up his words, trying to show that Rodney had been coached by his attorney. Even asking him, who told you it was called a baton, your lawyer? Rodney answered, sir, no one had to tell me that. I felt it. Rodney testifying in his trial humanized him in a way that was essential for this case. His quiet, soft-spoken demeanor on the stand was a contradiction of the way defense lawyers had portrayed him as an aggressive, violent felon. On April 17, 1993, the jury convicted two of the four officers on trial for violating Rodney King's civil rights when they beat him a little more than two years earlier. The verdicts were met with cheers, while police had fully mobilized with riot gear were slowly able to relax their guard. There would be no rioting. In August, they were both sentenced to two and a half years in federal prison. And on October 13, 1993, they both surrendered to begin serving the prison terms that they had long been trying to avoid. The only financial obligation was a $50 fee to the court. Many felt the sentences were far too lenient. Even jurors thought so. But the judge was sympathetic to the officers. And a little over a year after the convictions, Rodney King was awarded $3.8 million in compensation for the beating that he endured at the hands of the LAPD. So let's talk about life after the beating and the trials for Rodney King. I talked about his legal troubles before the 1991 beating, but there would be more in the years to come as his battle with addiction continued to plague him. In 1991, he was arrested on suspicion of trying to run over a vice squad officer who allegedly found him with a sex worker, but the charges were eventually dropped. In 1993, he was arrested on charges of DUI when he crashed his vehicle into a block wall in downtown Los Angeles. His blood alcohol content was twice the legal limit. He entered a rehabilitation program and was placed on probation. In 1995, Rodney was arrested in Alhambra, California, and charged with hitting his wife with his car, knocking her to the ground. He was convicted of hit and run and sentenced to 90 days in jail. In 1999, he was sentenced to another 90 days in the San Bernardino County Jail and placed on four years probation following a domestic dispute with one of his daughters and her mother. He was also ordered to attend a domestic violence treatment program and a child abuse program. In 2001, Rodney was ordered to attend a year-long drug treatment program after he was arrested on charges of being under the influence and indecent exposure in the city of Claremont, California. In 2003, he was arrested again on suspicion of domestic violence charges accused of punching his girlfriend in the stomach. The charges were later dropped. Again in 2003, Rodney was arrested when police in the city of Rialto, California observed him weaving through traffic in a Ford Expedition, reaching speeds of more than 100 miles or 160 kilometers per hour before crashing through a fence and into a San Bernardino house. He pleaded guilty to being under the influence of PCP and was sentenced to a six-month drug rehab program, as well as 120 days in jail. In 2005, Rodney was arrested yet again on suspicion of threatening to kill one of his daughters and her mother after the two women argued with his then-girlfriend. 
No charges were filed in that incident either. In 2007, while Rodney was riding his bike, he was shot in the face, arms, and back with pellets from a shotgun. He reported that the people who shot at him were a man and a woman who demanded his bike, but shot him when he rode away. Police described the wounds as looking like they came from bird shot. On March 3, 2011, which was the 20th anniversary of his beating, the LAPD pulled Rodney over for driving erratically. He was arrested and later convicted of reckless driving and driving with an expired license. Later on that same year, he was arrested again in Moreno Valley, California, on suspicion of driving under the influence. In 2008, Rodney checked into the Pasadena Recovery Center, where he was a part of the cast for season two of Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew. Dr. Drew expressed some great concern for Rodney's life, warning him that he was going to die unless he sought and followed through on treatment for his addiction. He also appeared on Sober House, which was a spinoff of Celebrity Rehab that had more of a focus on sober living. Incidentally, in 2010, Rodney confirmed that he was engaged to a woman named Cynthia Kelly. She had actually been one of the jurors in the civil lawsuit brought against the city of Los Angeles some 16 years earlier. Now, just in case you might think she may have had some interest in his money, I'll put that to rest right now. Rodney had all but squandered his settlement money that he had earned from the civil case. He did manage to purchase a home for himself and his mother, but mostly the bulk of the money was gone in one bad investment after another. In April of 2012, Rodney published a memoir entitled The Riot Within. In it, he discusses his battles with addiction and recovery. He also talked about his turbulent childhood, as well as his account of the beating, arrest, and trials, and the aftermath. And just two months after publishing his book, on June 17, 2012, Rodney was found lying underwater at the bottom of his backyard swimming pool by his fiance. Rialto police received her 911 call early that morning around 5.25 a.m. Officers responded to the home and removed him from the pool and attempted life-saving procedures. Ambulances arrived and transported him to the hospital, but he was pronounced dead upon arrival. A subsequent investigation found that no foul play was involved. It seemed to be a drowning accident. Two months later, his autopsy revealed that he did indeed die of accidental drowning, and the toxicology report found a combination of alcohol, marijuana, and cocaine in his system. It was determined that those substances were contributing factors in Rodney's death. The report stated, The effects of the drugs and alcohol, combined with the subject's heart condition, likely precipitated a cardiac arrhythmia, and the subject, incapacitated in the water, was unable to save himself. He was 47 years old. So, Rodney King. Not necessarily the most sympathetic character when you run down the checklist of the man's history of criminal behavior and domestic violence. It leaves behind a complicated portrait of the man who lived out the remainder of his life in a never-ending battle with addiction and every single move that he made was reported on by the media. Rodney lived in fear. 
He often wore a protective vest because of the threats made against his life. Whether you sympathize with Rodney or you don't, that's for each of you listening to decide. I'm not going to excuse away his transgressions or lay all of the blame on drug and alcohol addiction, but I can't help but wonder how things may have gone differently for the remainder of his 22 years on earth had that night never happened. He certainly wasn't the perfect citizen prior to the evening, nor was he afterwards. But for this story, I'm not going to judge him. I've lived with an addict for many, many, many years. They do things to you they normally wouldn't if their minds, bodies, and judgment weren't being clouded by drugs and alcohol. But we continue to love and care for them because we want to see them get better. Sometimes we put up with the anger and the fighting and the abuse because we tell ourselves it's the drugs, it's the alcohol, this is not them. I've been there. And Rodney had those people in his life. People who cared about him. But he often mistreated them. And nobody is ever okay with that type of behavior. Like I said, it's a complicated legacy. He became an icon for a generation, albeit a reluctant one, but an icon nonetheless. Because sometimes history includes important people that may very well be flawed. The beating transformed Rodney from an ex-convict being pulled over for drunk driving into the newest representation of the civil rights movement. But as I went through his lengthy incidents of run-ins with the law over the years, I see that he faltered in his role as an icon for his generation, and he struggled with these failures of his. But that doesn't diminish the fact that his beating led to profound change everywhere. In an interview he gave when his memoir came out, he was asked if he could change that night, would he have done anything differently? At one time he'd said he had, if he could do it all over again, he'd stay home. But later on, he said he wouldn't change anything about his choices because it changed things. In his words, his beating made the world a better place. Rodney King's beating sparked a conversation on race that continues to this day. That faithful encounter with the LAPD that night almost 27 years ago initiated a chain reaction of events that shifted the narrative of race in the United States. That videotape and the images of his badly beaten face finally gave credence to the fact that police brutality was a thing that needed to be taken seriously. Rodney's beating brought the issue of race and law enforcement to the forefront of the public consciousness. It shone a very harsh light on police brutality, unlike anything ever had before. It introduced the nation and the world to how much of a problem it really was. And in doing so, it paved the way for changes in the relationship between police departments and the communities they served, particularly the minority communities. It brought about the expansion of the concept of community policing, something Chief Daryl Gates was vehemently opposed to. Rodney's beating essentially forced Gates and his powerful, hard-handed, paramilitary style of policing out 
and brought in the city's first African-American chief, as well as set in place term limits for the office of LA's top cop to two five-year terms. It brought the LAPD under civilian control and set in motion a transformation of its generation's old style of policing to today's model, one that is centered around accountability, respect, and diversity. Is it perfect? Probably not. But it is in a better place than the Gates era and the time before him. And Rodney gave us all the big question. Can we all get along? Some saw it as ridiculous and naive, since so many people were dying and so many buildings were burning around him. He'd been mocked for years for his famous plea, but yet the question still hangs in the air because we are still encountering incidents of excessive force allegedly used on minorities across the country, particularly in recent years, some of their deaths making big headlines. Freddie Gray, Natasha McKenna, Walter Scott, Christian Taylor, Michael Brown, Izell Ford, Eric Gardner, Laquan McDonald, Tamir Rice. The list is long. And where are the four men who were convicted of attacking and beating Reginald Denny? Well, Damien Williams, the one who was found most responsible for the brutal attack, was 19 at the time and a member of the Eight Trade Gangster Crips. He was released from prison in 1997 for his conviction related to Mr. Denny. But in 2000, he was accused of being an accomplice in the murder of Grover Tenner, a former gang member who operated a crack house in South Los Angeles. He and his accomplice were both found guilty for their part in Tenner's death. Williams was not the trigger person, but was sentenced to 51 years in prison. He is currently incarcerated at Calipatria State Prison. Henry Watson, at the time he participated on the attack on Mr. Denny, he was a 27-year-old former Marine and ex-convict. After he was released from prison in 1993, he appeared on the Phil Donahue show with Mr. Denny and personally apologized for his role in the attack. He continued to have some trouble with the law, but the last anyone's heard, he is still living in Los Angeles and running a limousine business. Gary Williams did not fare well after his release from serving his time for his role in Mr. Denny's attack. It's been reported that he continues to struggle with an addiction to crack and is often seen at local Los Angeles area gas stations asking for money and handouts. Antoine Miller had the lightest sentence of the four convicted in the attack. He was 19 years old at the time, and he had actually been living with Damien Williams' family when the attack happened. His mom was a drug addict, so when he was a child, he was sent to live with his grandmother. When he was 12, his grandmother killed his grandfather and went on to be convicted of murder, essentially leaving Miller homeless. Williams' mother took Miller in, and he had relatively no real criminal history to speak of other than the attack on Mr. Denny. On February 1st, 2004, he was shot and killed in a nightclub in Hollywood. He was 31 years old. As for the LAPD officers involved in the case, after Dale Gates retired, he moved to Orange County. He died in 2010 at the age of 83. 
Stacy Kuhn worked for some time as a part-time paralegal assistant after he served his prison term. And Lawrence Powell, after he got out, enrolled in college, but ended up dropping out. He works in some capacity in the computer industry. Ted Brasino, last reported, was working for a private firm as a security guard. Timothy Wind, after the acquittal, took a job as a community service officer in Culver City, California. And what about the man who filmed the whole thing? Mr. George Holliday. Um, he was paid $500 for that video that ignited the most ferocious civil uprising in recent memory. He continues to live and work as a plumber in the San Fernando Valley. He owns a copy of his 9-minute video, but the original is kept in the Federal Archives. And with that, I'm going to bring this 33rd episode of California Dreaming to a close. But there's really one more important thing that I wanted to tell you about, but I feel like I'm reaching my limits on time here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to wrap this up with all of my outro stuff. And then if you still care to listen, I'm going to list the people who lost their lives amid the looting and the fires that ravaged Los Angeles over those five days. Ten people were shot to death by law enforcement. Forty-four other people died in homicides or incidents that were related to the rioting. I don't want to leave them out of the story, and many of them were really up to no good when they lost their lives, but I still feel like I need to acknowledge them. So if you'd like to hear the list, please feel free to listen on, otherwise you can skip to your next show. Incidentally, by the time 1992 had come to a close, Los Angeles had recorded 1,096 homicides, an all-time high, as it remains to this day Los Angeles's deadliest year. California Dreaming has found a home on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We have joined forces with an eclectic group of podcast shows and hosts, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, The Dirty Bits, Historium, Is This Adulting, 41 Owned, and Film Roast. You can find all of us on www.orbitaljigsaw.com. And guess what? We have also launched the Orbital Jigsaw Podience Facebook group. All of us from Orbital Jigsaw are there, along with a bunch of other hosts from some of your favorite shows and some of our biggest and best podcast listeners and fans. It's more than just talking about our shows, but rather it's an interactive group where we share ideas, articles, and news about all the things podcasts and social media related, and so much more. And so far, it's been a tremendously fun place to get new ideas, meet new friends, share your experiences as both a host and a listener, and find out what's working and what doesn't. It's a supportive, inclusive, drama-free group. Search Orbital Jigsaw Podience, spelled P-O-D-I-E-N-C-E, and request to join. You can also find links to the Orbital Jigsaw Network merchandise store. You can get your California Dreaming t-shirt, mug, phone case, tote bag, and more. Every purchase supports the creation of this show. And to all of those who have supported me on Patreon, thank you, thank you, thank you. I have a bonus coming for you very soon, I promise. My computer kind of took a crap today, and so I'm borrowing my husband's, and it's not really going very well. But I will get it done. 
If you would like to gain access to my bonus content for as little as $1, you can also receive other perks as well, like early releases and show stickers for all new patrons. I will post the link in the show notes. And if you can't do that, you can absolutely help out the show by joining the Facebook group, follow me on Twitter, and also on Instagram. Visit the California Dreaming Facebook page and rate the show, and rate the show on iTunes as well. All of that helps give the show more visibility, so your ratings are greatly appreciated. Thank you again for listening, and don't forget to listen after this if you want to hear the list of victims of the rioting. Otherwise, until next time, sweet dreams. More than 60 people lost their lives amid the looting and fires that ravaged the city over five days, starting April 29, 1992. The following is a list of those people, compiled in a spreadsheet published by the Los Angeles Times on April 25, 2012. Aaron Ratanoff, age 68, died on May 1st. Alfred V. Miller, age 32, also on May 1st. Andreas Garnica, age 36, died April 30th. Anthony J. Taylor, age 31, also died on April 30th. Anthony Netherly, age 21, also died April 30th. Arturo Miranda, age 23, died April 29th. Betty Jackson, age 56, died May 1st. Brian E. Andrew, age 30, died April 30th. Carol Benson, age 42, died May 2nd. Cesar Aguilar, age 18, died April 30th. Charles Oribo, age 21, died May 1st. Darnell Mallory, age 18, died April 30th. DeAndre Harrison, age 17, died April 30th. Dennis Ray Jackson, age 38, died April 30th. Dwight Taylor, age 42, died April 29th. Eduardo Vela, age 33, died April 29th. Edward Travins, age 15, died April 29th. Edward Lee, age 18, died April 30th. Albert Wilkins, age 33, died April 30th. Elias Riviera, age 32, died December 16, 1992. He had been in a coma for eight months in critical condition with a fractured skull and severe brain damage. He was finally taken off life support on December 16th. Ernest Neal, age 27, died April 30th. Frank D. Lopez, age 36, died April 30th. Franklin Benavidez, age 27, died April 30th. Frederick Ward, age 20, died May 2nd. George Sosa, age 20, died April 30th. George Alvarez, age 42, died May 1st. Gregory Davis Jr., age 15, 
died April 30th. Harry Doler, age 56, died May 1st. Hector Castro, age 49, died April 30th. Howard Epstein, age 45, died April 30th. Howard Eugene Martin, age 22, died May 3rd. Hugo Ramirez, age 23, died May 3rd. Ira McCurry, age 45, died April 30th. James L. Taylor, age 26, died April 30th. Jarrell Chanel, age 26, died April 30th. Jimmy Harris, age 38, died April 29th. John Willers, age 37, died April 29th. Jose Garcia, age 15, died April 30th. Jose Solorzano, age 25, died May 1st. Juan Panita, age 20, died April 30th. Juan Salgado, age 20, was actually not discovered until May 20th, 1992, inside a building that had been burned during the riots. It was a clothing store called Collective Merchandise, and that's where he had last been seen. Juana Espinoza, age 65, died May 2nd. Juanita Petaway, age 37, died on April 30th. Kevin Evanhen, age 24, died May 1st. Kevin Edwards, age 35, died April 30th. Lewis Watson, age 18, died April 29th. Lucy Marion, age 51, died May 1st. Mark Garcia, age 15, died April 30th. Matthew Haynes, age 32, died April 30th. Meeker Gibson, age 35, died May 1st. Nassar Mustafa, age 20, was actually not discovered until August 12, 1992, and his charred and decomposed body was discovered in Harvard Heights in the 1600 block of Southwestern Avenue. His body was found by a demolition crew clearing the rubble inside a J.J. Newberry store that was burned by looters on the first night of rioting. Patrick Batan, age 30, died April 30th. Paul Horace, age 38, died May 1st. Suzanne Morgan, age 24, died May 1st. Tran Lam, age 25, died April 30th. Victor Rivas, age 26, died May 3rd. Vivian Austin, age 87, died May 3rd. She had actually died of heart failure, and her friends had reported that she was extremely distraught over the events that had been taking place in the past five days. Wallace Tope, age 54, died November 24, 1993. He had been in a coma since he was assaulted on April 30th, near the 5500 block of West Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. He was a street evangelist, and he had gathered to watch some looters ransack a drugstore. He stood there and he began to preach, urging the crowd to stop the looting 
and placed their faith in Jesus. As he was preaching, two men began to beat him. When he tried to flee, he fell to the ground, and the men repeatedly kicked him in the head for nearly three minutes. He was rescued by a passing ambulance, but he lapsed into a coma and remained there until he died November 24, 1993. The two men were charged with murder, and they were both sentenced to life in prison. William Ross, age 33, died May 1st. Willie Bernard Williams, age 29, died April 29th. And finally, Wilson Alvarez, age 40, died May 23rd as a result of head injuries he sustained while he was throwing rocks at looters back on May 1st. If you want to take a look at the Los Angeles Times spreadsheet, it's found at spreadsheets.latimes.com backslash la-riots-deaths backslash. Next to each of their names is a little icon that will tell you their story. You just have to hover your mouse over it. Again, thank you for listening.